Hi everyone and welcome to this new episode of You Gotta Act, a podcast about actors and acting. Today we have a very special guest talking to us all the way from California, I believe. And it is, yes. and it is writer, uh, screenwriter, producer, director, Larry Karazuski. Hello there. Hello there. Hi, Larry. Yeah, I'm coming from you. I'm coming to you from a very burning California right now. The entire state is on fire. It's really. I saw. Uh, you woke up this morning and there was like the smoke in the air and like you can't really see the sun right now. It's really a bit of a disaster. Mm, I saw. But pictures. I wanted to do this podcast so much. I wanted. I came directly. You know, I said, forget about it. My house is on fire, but I want to talk to Manuela. <laughs> well, we really appreciate. I mean, you right. just have a right sense of your priorities, right. and I really respect right. that. <laughs> I'm gonna act, I'm gonna act like everything is okay. Exactly. So you just follow me. I'm like, hey, how are you? Oh, yeah, I'm just kicking back. <laughs> exactly. Just, Things are burning. <laughs> it's just like yeah. that meme of the dog in right. the house on fire. It's like exactly. this is fine. Exactly. exactly. No, well, I'm really I'm sorry. I'm the dog. I'm the dog. <laughs> exactly. But I'm really sorry that this is happening. I mean, I've seen pictures. It's mm. surreal. It looks like a it's sci-fi terrible. film, but in a bad way. Obviously. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> a bad sci-fi movie, yeah, a bad one. Yeah, uh, it's kind well, of like all sci-fi movies are bad, though, aren't they? I mean, very. I guess maybe you know they're always like some oppressive thing that's hanging over the whole planet. That's true. They very rarely are, is there a happy future. That's true. I, w I would have to think long and hard about mm. uh, optimistic <laughs> sci-fi film, but yeah. 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 Um, so Larry, you are most known for writing with your co-screenwriter uh, Scott Alexander, and you've written yes. many, many films and some TV as well. And today you decided to talk with us about the great John Cazale. So yes. do you pronounce it Cazale or Cazale? So we just had a conversation I... about how our names are pronounced. And I know that uh, people say Kazal, but that sounds Kazal. wrong. I think Kazal. I, I think that's, that's, I mean, that's how everyone says it here. So, yeah. you know. Because there is a luck e at if the that's end. wrong. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it's kind, Kazal, of, but it's kind of like in The Godfather when they say, the, you know, the non-Italo-American characters, they say Don Corleone, and that's wrong. It's Corleone, right. you know what I mean? Anyway. Yeah. So John Kazal. Yeah. But before we get into Kazal, right. uh, can you please tell us a bit about your journey yourself into filmmaking? Because you have done so many interesting things, and yeah, yeah. I think people would um, like to hear. It from I mean, you. me and S Scott and I are primarily known for writing uh, kind of strange true life stories, uh, sort of the alternate history of the 20th century a bit, uh, leaning a little bit towards. Uh, the entertainment world um you know we wrote a film called ed wood with tim burton and johnny depp and martin landau won the academy award for best supporting actor for that movie uh and we followed it up with the people versus larry flint which is another kind of controversial film but woody harrelson was nominated for best actor in that film and um you know the other the other big ones are like man on the moon with jim carrey uh which i uh, watched Oh, you watched it? Okay, Last good. Night, yeah. um, we can talk about it if you want to. Um, and, uh, you know, Big Eyes with Amy Adams and Christoph Waltz. And uh, more recently, uh, we created American Crime Story and uh, primarily did season one, the, uh, the People versus O.J. Simpson, which we were very, very proud of. That was, that was our baby. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, last year, we had a movie called Dolomite Is My Name starring Eddie Murphy. We really loved that movie. That was a great, great, great experience. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, I've done other things since. I grew up in Indiana. Um, uh, my mom was a waitress. My dad worked in a factory, but I fell in love with movies very, very early on. And so I sort of used it as an escape. And uh, I came out to California and I always had this kind of 
bizarre confidence. And uh, even though I was from a blue collar background and didn't know any writers growing up, I sort of, you know, I, I, I you know, I felt it was something I could do. Actually, I, strange enough, I, in the beginning, I wanted to, I thought I'd be an actor, but because when you're a kid, when you go to the movies, mm-hmm. you instantly just totally identify with that person on the screen. There's no way you cannot look at a Paul Newman movie and say, oh, that's Paul Newman. I want to be Paul Newman. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's only uh, after a certain point where you realize, wait a second, there's a sort of, sort of a power behind the lens. There's a, there's a creative team making this movie. And strangely enough, I think my epiphany moment was with a John Cazale film, uh, The Conversation. I think that I, I, hit, I saw that movie and I was like, I don't know, uh, 11, 12, 13, something like that. And I think that was my, I always knew whatever. I was in the movie, so I knew there was a director. I knew there was a writer. I knew there's a person taking the pictures, but I didn't really overly think about them. When I saw the conversation, you know, Coppola uh, really made an impression on me. And it was when Coppola was having that insane run for Godfather conversation, Godfather 2 right back to back to back. And so, you know, the conversation is... um, much smaller intimate film and that that really affected me and i really thought about how the writing the directing the sound design the acting it all blended together but there would seem to be one vision behind that and that was francis i totally agree couldn't say it better um i didn't know you first wanted to be an actor that's that's really appropriate well i started out as uh uh i was very lucky in the town i I grew up in there was a um uh, uh a television show on the NBC affiliate there uh, called Beyond Our Control. It was sort of a Saturday Night Live or Second City TV, actually began before either one of those shows existed. And it was a weekly half-hour television show that was kind of written, directed, and starred kids, uh, high school students. Um, And uh, I mean, it just was this godsend to uh, us. I mean, I really don't feel like I went to high school in South Bend. I kind of did Beyond Our Control. And, uh, you know, you'd write scripts on Monday and Tuesday night. You'd cast them on uh, and have a full company meeting on Wednesday. You would rewrite on Thursday. You'd build sets on Friday. You'd shoot it on Saturday. You'd be on TV on Sunday. And this was, you know, this went on forever. And... um, uh, so, you know, I was, I was like, it was like being on SNL, you sort of like write your own bits and it was primarily a, a comedy show, uh, where the, the gimmick was someone had taken over your television. So it was channel switching. They would, you'd go to one station for a couple of minutes, you come, you go to another channel, then you go back and forth. And so we had a lot of fun, but it was, it really taught me more than anything was that you have to get things done. Uh, you know, like a lot of writers, you know, wait for the muse to hit them mm-hmm. or, you know, uh, uh, we won't finish something. So many writers are working on the same thing for two years or three years or something like this. But because I, I learned writing and, and that way, uh, you know, it was like, well, it was going to be on Sunday, whether it was good, bad, or ugly, you know? So, yeah. uh, you know, you learn to say, this is, you know, get it as good as you can finish it. And you just pumping out that material just makes it a well-oiled machine. Mm-hmm. But I was an actor on that. Um, and I think when I came out to California, I very, you know, it was actually before I got to California, I realized this, that I'm not a dummy. I'm a, I'm a fan of filmmakers. I'm a fan of films and television. I sort of looked at myself and, you know, what's the best case scenario? I'm the, I'm the sort of a funny next door neighbor, the chubby guy who rings the doorbell and comes in. And that's really, yeah, I was a little bit, you know, right there, during my time period, there was John Belushi floating out there. So I, there was a chance, you know, I thought for a second, I'd go trying to go to second city or something like that and, you know, go the John Belushi route. But um, uh, I decided not to do that. 
but it was a great experience. And, and I'm not the only person. I mean, uh, Daniel Waters, who wrote the movie Heathers and Batman Returns. Uh, 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 Dean Norris is a great actor. He was uh, played uh, in Breaking Bad. Right. Um, uh, Dave Simpkins did Adventures in Babysitting. The person who invented that TV show, Blue's Clues. I don't know if you have Blue's Clues in, in Europe. So. It was a children's show out here. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of people. Wow. Got their start in this show in a very small town in Indiana. Amazing. You know, so, yeah. That's great. Um, yeah. I, I'm, I'm jealous. <laughs> I wish I had any yeah, no. kind of outlet like that. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, so you said you first noticed Kazal in uh, the conversation. Um, I mean, I probably uh, I probably noticed him, you know, I saw The Godfather, but I was a little young to see The Godfather. Mm. Uh, but, um, I mean, you know, I just, Kazal is such a, an interesting actor uh because he only made five films he made five films all five films are nominated for best picture at the oscars and they're five of the most amazing movies that exist from the 1970s mm -hmm. um it's just an insane body of work um and then he unfortunately he died of cancer um and you know he's not the star of any of these movies yeah, and he wasn't nominated. so i think no he's never nominated well, any of them i mean he wasn't really you know he wasn't I mean, he was discussed back then as being like a great actor, but I think his 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 um, his legend has grown greater and greater and greater over time, mm -hmm. because I think he 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 proves that adage. Uh, you know, what is it? There there are no such thing as a as a as a as a small role, mm -hmm. only small actors or whatever. Because he infuses these fairly small parts uh, with a real personality and a real character and an alive human being so when you watch the godfather over and over again you watch conversation over and over again or deer hunter or dog the afternoon um you know you get a real sense of who uh who this person is in the who not john Cazale. you don't know who john Cazale is at all but who that character is mm. i mean like when the godfather came out I mean, he's in only 10 minutes of the godfather Wow. You know, but he's in 10 minutes of Godfather and Godfather is like three hours long, <laughs> but he makes an impression mm -hmm. and everything he does as Fredo, you know, that winds up paying off in Godfather 2 is totally there in Godfather 1. And that's before they even knew there was going to be a Godfather 2. Mm -hmm. uh, so what he's, you know, he's just... Um, yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, he's I was, a very powerful, powerful actor. I was just thinking earlier today that I remember when I was young and, you know, The Godfather would be on TV, for instance. And, you know, I obviously was too young to understand anything, but I yeah. just remembered Fredo and his face and just everything about this character. And I think it had something to do with just the fact that he looked so like a normal guy. Like, you know, he didn't, yeah. he didn't look like a movie star, but also yeah. it was his acting because he really felt like a real person. As in like, you know, you see Fredo just this first scene when he's drunk at the wedding and he comes to see hi yeah. to Michael. And you know so much about him just in that little moment, just by the fact that yeah. even though he's totally drunk, him. he's nice, he's kind of goofy and kind of embarrassing, but he's sweet and he's yeah. drunk by himself. Like it, there's so much in just that moment and it really stays. No, you, you said, you say completely correctly that, that is that opening scene, which is, you know, a lot of actors would play comically or bigger. I'm the drunk guy. Nothing's worse than playing a drunk, you know, yeah. but he's, he's, he's just, he comes in and he's Michael's older brother, but right away, you know, this guy's, you know, he's a little, you know, he's not, he's not, 
Michael. He's not Don Corleone. He's not Sonny. He is, you know, he's this little sweet drunk guy who just wants to kiss. He wants to, he wants to be loved. And that's Fredo's thing the entire time. He wants respect. He wants love. But he's just not, he doesn't have it. Yeah. And which was interesting at the time. I think one of the reasons why, you know, he wasn't talked about that much at the time. When you see The Godfather and it just came out, like, there was all these actors making their first appearance. So it was like, you know, Pal Pacino was landing and, and even like uh, James Caan was like, he was a man of action. He was going to star in movies. So he didn't walk out of that movie initially talking about Fredo. Yeah, yeah. But, but as time goes on, it's like, wow, Fredo. Yeah. You know, he really, it's a really, also we can all identify with that because we're not, we're not mobsters. We're not, we're not all men of action. Mm-hmm. At least me. Um, you might be a man of action. I'm not sure. I'm not saying, I'm not um, answering that question. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what, Sinners about Gazelle, almost all his films, he plays someone who is a, a part of the group but kind of outside of the group mm, on the sidelines, you know, Fre- yeah. Fredo is a Corleone and, but he's not one of the main guys. He's not like he's, and he so wants to be, mm. you know, stand in the conversation, you know, he wants to be Harry calls equal, but Harry won't even tell him what the job's about. So he wants desperately to be the main, a main player or a partner. Mm. Just like, you know, like, uh, you know, like in Godfather, he's like, yeah, I was stepped over. He was, you know, he's like that. He's like, Harry won't make him a partner. Mm. Um, and you know, uh, in the deer hunter, he's not, you know, there's all the guys, the guys who go, I mean, that's another movie where he's in it very little, mm. but he's not in the second act of the movie. He's a friend back home. who doesn't go to war. Yeah. So when they all come back, he is not, he's still there and he's a bit of a chicken. He's playing with his guns and things like this, but he's not really, he doesn't have the, the, the pain and the horror that the other guys have. So mm-hmm. to him, violence is just, he's just a, he's a bit of a clown. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing of it is like a lot of actors might've played most of these characters, maybe as clowns or yeah. as outsiders or would have somehow winked mm-hmm. at the audience. Like say, totally. cause actors don't, actors don't like to play weak. You know, they don't want people to, I mean, I, mm. you know, uh, Fred Ruse is a brilliant casting director. He's Francis, the casting director. Uh, and he found all those, he helped find all those actors. He found Cazal uh, uh, doing a play with Richard Dreyfuss. Wow. And, um, and the second Francis saw him, he was like, that's, that's Fredo. But, but part of the thing was, you know, every big actor in Hollywood wanted to play Don Corleone. Every, you know, all, everyone wanted to play all these big parts. Mm. And sort of nobody, there wasn't a whole lot of people wanting to play Fredo. I want to be the, you know, the sad, weak brother. That's not, you know, actors don't want to play that because you become that part. You can get mm. typecast. You can become Tony Perkins after Psycho or whatever. All of a sudden yeah. you are Fredo, you know. That's true. Um, I mean, we didn't and, really get to see if that happened because obviously he, he passed away quite young. Yeah. But yeah, it's yeah. true. And I, I watched an interview with um, Philip Samuel Hoffman who was talking about Cazal and he was saying, he said something really on point, I think. He said that Cazal had a very, um, like, destabilizing vulnerability. Like, he was always the most vulnerable actor on set. And according to Philip Seymour Hoffman, that kind of pushed the other actors to be like, oh, I need to work hard because this guy was doing it. And he wasn't afraid of being the weak or vulnerable or or shy or ridiculous guy because that was his job. It was, yeah. I think he's, I really expressed that really well. He makes everybody better mm. because he's just not, he is so totally in the scene 
and he's totally what you know he's he is he is not overplaying he's a, he's a great underplayer but he's you can tell that everyone when they're working with him they rate their game gets a bit raised mm. um and that's probably why Pacino worked with him three times yeah and you he know, also did a lot uh, because, of plays with him I think I yeah yeah in an interview he explained that yeah he he says he probably learned from John about acting the most than from anyone else and yeah, yeah. and I think you're right I think they kind of I was thinking the same thing actually the other day um, in Dog Day Afternoon. It's interesting how the the energies are kind of reversed from The Godfather because yeah. it's kind of like suddenly Pacino is the crazy impulsive one who's really trying to make a point and Casal is more withdrawn and interior focused on himself. But together yeah. they can really go in those places and switch around and play in a very like real way. I yeah, no, totally. That's uh, uh, and Dog Day Afternoon. Um, it's funny. Another actor probably would have played that guy more threatening and dangerous, and maybe a bit of a thug, you yeah, know. Totally. Uh, and and uh, you know, he plays him. You know, he's he's a little bit dangerous in the beginning, but like he becomes withdrawn and quiet the entire time. And like, that makes him more scary. Speech, yeah, I think. when he has that speech with Pacino, where it's like. Uh, Hey, you know, did you did you mean it when you said we're going to start throwing bodies at at the door? You mean you're going to, you know, I think I could do it. Yeah. And now that is a weird because because he's saying it so quiet, you could tell that he's been sitting there for the, like 10, 15 minutes, wondering, well, can I actually kill these people? Yeah, you know, if, if he tells me to kill him, I will. Mm. You know, so it's like it's like actually that's a terrifying moment. And if if any other actor played it, they would have played it as like. I'm uh, I'm not badass, but it's more like you you know you're 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 the killer. He's mm. not playing it as a killer. Mm. He's playing it as a as a. And it's interesting. Lamette um, uh, didn't want John Cazale at all. Really? Uh, Pacino, yeah, Pacino um, suggested him, and apparently, because uh, that's based on a true story, and um, uh, you know the real person was much younger, like 19 years old. And so in the right. script, he was written as a 19-year-old. And, and, you know, Lamette just knew him as Fredo. And he was like, no, I don't, it's just, this guy is not Fredo. It's not Fredo. And it was like, um, uh, and then he did it as a favor to Pacino. I'll meet him and I'll, he can read. And he came in and Lamette was like, oh, fuck. This is it's a completely, reinter it's a reinterpretation of the role without changing the role. Mm -hmm. That's a very rare actor that, can do that where it's like it's written in a certain way but if you just play it a little differently the more quiet is a totally different person there mm. i mean i think that had happened uh one time really big in my career was uh i made a horror film called 1408 uh based on a love stephen it. king story love that film. um oh thank you um i love that film too it's, it doesn't get quite the uh the talk that some of my other stuff does but um but i think it's a it, i was very happy how everything everything kind of works in that movie the um but uh, Sam Jackson plays uh, the, the manager of the hotel. Mm -hmm. And he's barely in the movie, but he has a big scene where he tries to talk John Cusack out of checking in. And as written in the script, Mr. Olin is kind of an officious kind of guy. He should be, you know, we were thinking when we were writing it more like an Ian Holm or, mm -hmm. you know, or Anthony Hopkins kind of guy, the, the sort of the manager of the hotel. He's, yeah. a, you know, he, everything should be proper and like, you know, uh, don't go in there. It's messy, you know, that kind, that kind of thing. And um, 
I believe it was Tarantino who suggested Sam for the part. And it was like, holy, mm, I don't know, man. It's like, you know, I, Sam Jackson's one of the great world's greatest actors, but God, he, Sam Jackson, Ian Holm, you don't think of them playing the same parts. We're like, oh, oh, if, we, if we're going to cast Sam, let's go look. We don't have to change a lot. And we just started reading it as Sam Jackson. And it was, holy shit, we're not, we don't have to change a thing. <laughs> this is amazing because, you know, uh, Ian Holm telling Kuzak not to go in the room, it's more like, you know, there's this a, a sort of more of a prissy guy saying the room is scary. Sam Jackson saying, don't go in that room. Well, if the room is fucking scaring Sam Jackson, you better, <laughs> yeah. you know, John Cusack's going to get his ass kicked, totally. you know? So yeah. all of a sudden it was like off the page, it just jumped. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but that's the same kind of thing where like also just by the right casting and the right interpretation of an actor can totally change the part. Yeah. And that's the thing about, about, you know, like, like Stan and, um, in the conversation, it could have just been a normal guy. It just could have been, you know, it could have been just someone who fades into the background. He's really, you know, um, it's strange. Kazal is often so much better than the part mm. because of what he brings. So he really, you know, proves that, you know, the fact, yeah, there's, there's no small parts, you know, he, yeah, exactly. totally. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's funny because he, he reminds me a lot um, of Montgomery Clift in some ways, because mm -hmm. They both played uh, these kind of, you know, kind of regular guys, uh, but with a twist or with just a lot of personality. And I actually, when when I was thinking that, and then I googled it, and I found that apparently Montgomery Clift was Cazal's favorite actor. So that's great. Oh wow! Yeah. Wow. And and it kind of makes total sense to me because I I feel the same uh, willingness to be vulnerable and willingness to really look at the character they're playing and respect the character and not make a fool of the character, even if the ca character is a fool, as in, you yes. know, Fredo. And, right, right. But it kind of feels different in their careers because I think, like, the cinema of the 70s, you know, with all the new Hollywood uh, directors, it really was right. made for this kind of realistic, uh, really technically demanding acting, whereas the, the cinema of the time of Monty was more, you know, it was still kind of not there yet it was still quite um how can i say like theatrical that sounds wrong yeah, but you know kind it of was old hollywood. classical it's old hollywood versus new hollywood yeah and it's interesting how that makes that style of cinema makes monty kind of sometimes disappear in his films whereas Cazal, mm -hmm. in the cinema that he got to be a part of he stands out because the form matches his style and i yeah. i just found that amazing and I kind of wonder if his career had gone on, like how would he have adapted and how would that have evolved? I mean, I guess we can compare to other guys of his era, but yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's funny. Um, I mean, the other thing Cliff had hanging over his shoulder was the fact he was, he was a good look, you know, at least for a part of his true. career, he was a good looking guy. And yeah. so he often got the leads. And so what Cliff was doing in the middle of the lead is different than what Cazal's doing on the side. Cazal, True. you know, this is this is not really fair to call him, but it's like he, uh, I wouldn't call him Peter Lorre, but the way Peter Lorre could play an M mm -hmm. was playing a child molester, yet he was so vulnerable. Yeah, and so you know, you actually are feeling for Peter Lorre, like you know, you don't, you don't, you know, he, they they got to get rid of him, but he's like, you know, you really are feeling for him. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the thing about Cazal uh, and so many like Fredo, Fredo should be despicable 
Yeah. I mean, Fredo is a fool. Fredo sets up his brother to be murdered. He's, you know, he's, everything about him should make you hate him. But instead, you hate Michael for killing him. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, you you fall in that side where there's, I think it's at uh, Mama Corleone's um, uh, funeral in Godfather 2, where, because Al is just a friggin' wreck, and, 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 and Al has said he's never going to see him again. Um, and then Talia Shire goes to him and says, like, you know, he's, he's so helpless without you, Michael. I'm almost going to cry because this is like, you know, Fredo is totally lost without this thing. And so Michael goes over and hugs him. And because Al just is hugging him so tight and shaking, kind of. And then Al does a, does a sort of a look over to uh, Neary. And it's like, oh, well, you know, that's, <laughs> that's, not, so that's not going to last long. Yeah. yeah. It's so cold. Yeah. It's... Um, but it's interesting also. I'm, I'm really dominating the conversation. I hate that. So sorry. Go but, for um, it. That's what you you're here. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, I'm one of those guests. Like, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> he just talked and talked and talked. You know, <laughs> we couldn't even get to dessert. We um, get those sometimes. It's fine. <laughs> uh, you're talking about the seven, the he because uh, I was so lucky to be in the cinema of the 70s, and mm-hmm. it is so true. He, um, you know, and it's absolutely terrible that he died. Uh, that's also part of the legend, and that yeah. he made these five kind of perfect films. He didn't have to go and be the um, the store owner in a Rodney Dangerfield picture, you know what I mean? Or, you know, a John Candy movie or, or Adam Sandler picture. I'm not knocking any of those guys. I like them, but you know what I mean? Like a lot of those guys had to, you know, Al Pacino eventually had to make uh, Jack and Jill, you yeah. know? So there's a lot, you know, the, the cinema in the seventies was different than any other time. So there's a kind of a perfection mm. to what Cazal did and what he did in those five movies that once you get beyond 1980 it's you know movies get taken over by the goonies and 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 things like that and then you're off to you know you're off to a whole nother thing and there isn't really there's not really a place for guys like this i mean look at i mean i I said ronnie dangerfield kind of randomly but instantly i think of joe pesci joe pesci's in uh in uh in raging bull he's amazing i think the next time he shows up he's in he's playing rodney dangerfield's assistant in uh in in easy money or something you know what i mean because what do you it's kind of what do you do with these guys yeah Totally. I've been a guy who, like, I can see Kazal becoming, um, or whatever, is, is, uh, look at Steve Buscemi's career. Mm. Buscemi's sort of that same yeah. kind of thing where he's, he's technically looks kind of, str- I mean, he looks, he looks like, uh, Kazal in Dog Day Afternoon, you know, mm. <laughs> kind of in a weird way. Kind he's been great in that part. But yeah. the same kind of thing where he's threatening, but he's also, there's a sweetness and you don't, you know, he's a little, he's a puppy dog mm. and he's a villain at the same time. So there's, you know, that's there's true. that kind of thing. Buscemi's uh, kind of maintained that kind of career. Mm, that's true. But it's interesting you say that he's, um, you know, kind of tragic uh, character of the 70s because you yourself are extremely interested in tragic and talented people or people who want to who think they're talented. I don't know who are talented. Yes, who no, no one yeah. else thinks they are talented. Right. More like, so it's They're swimming against the stream. They are swimming against the stream. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. Cause all your characters, like Ed Wood, obviously the worst director ever, apparently. And even Larry Flint, you know, the free speech martyr and all that. Um, mm-hmm. What, what is it that attracts you so much to these tragic, talented people? Well, I think it's because, um, I mean, before Scott and I came along, the biopic was sort of these, sort of the, 
they were all about great men. They're mm-hmm. all about these these people who did noble things. It was Gandhi. It was Patton. It was these three hours things that were sort of uh, cradle to the grave. These these you know these kind of long kind of boring. I mean, biopic gets a bad rap because they're usually pretty boring. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this this is something we discovered after Ed Wood. But you know, every couple of years, every decade, or every you know, the gangster film gets reinvented. Mm-hmm. You know, the Western gets reinvented. The biopic never got reinvented as a genre. Mm -hmm. You know, there wasn't a revisionist biopic. I mean, so we're the revisionist biopics. We came in and said, uh, well, no, let's let's look at, you know, let's look at sort of the underbelly of success and people who have a lot of passion for what they're doing, but society is is telling them that's, you know, Mm. that's wrong. And so inherently there's conflict. There's constant conflict and they're constantly having to push their wares and they're never, usually never that successful. And, but there's some reason things lived on after them. I mean, uh, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, it's, it's like, you know, Andy Kaufman wants to make comedy that's not funny. You know, he basically sort of has performance art is, is his thing, you know. Uh, and, and, you know, Dolomite, Dolomite, uh, Eddie Murphy is amazing in Dolomite because it's like, you know, no one really gets where he's coming from. Mm-hmm. And it seems ridiculous what he's doing. He seems foolish what he's doing. And uh, yet he, a lot of times it's about the personal passion. He believes in what he's doing. Edward believes in what he's doing. And, you know, they, a lot of times when people have bad movie festivals or go watch bad movies, you can tell the people who are making it didn't believe in what they were doing. Mm. I think the reason people, are, people Scott and I are, are, are attracted to our people, you know, no one else may like it, but God damn it, you know that they did. They were making, in a sense, the most personal filmmaking of all. Mm. They were making movies literally off the top of their head for what they like. Mm. Just for you themselves. Know, just for themselves and their friends. And they, were, they wanted to make them and they did it. And it's, it's got their personality all over it. Mm. And it was funny, like even, you know, uh, Ed Wood... Edward's movie before our film was, they were just laughed at. They were always totally laughed at. And there's some sense they're still laughed at today. But something like Glenn or Glenda, you watch Glenn or Glenda now, knowing Edward's personal story, knowing that's a, that's the thing. It's like, a, it's, you know, it's impossible to laugh at. It's, it's like basically you're watching this thing, this is a experimental, powerful, personal film. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's not that, oh, that's ridiculous, which is like, that's what people thought of when it got rediscovered in the late 70s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually studied uh, the Edward film, the Planet One. What is it called? Plan Nine from Outer Space. Plan Nine from Outer Space. Uh, in film, in school, yeah. in film studies, I okay. was like, "Oh, look at this bad film." <laughs> it was okay. interesting. Um, yeah. Is um, also I so I said I watched Man on the Moon uh, last night, and okay. I can't say I enjoyed the experience because I just find him so difficult. But as a yes. film itself, I found it fascinating, and I also know it's uh, interesting. I also found it fascinating for uh, Jim Carrey's performance because obviously yes. that's a total performance, like total yeah. devotion. 
And that kind of have reminds me. Have you seen me. the documentary Jim and Andy? Yeah. By any chance? Okay. I actually so you saw see that it. first, or you saw? Yeah. That's funny. I saw the documentary first, and I was like, I'm never yeah, going to watch exactly. this film. <laughs> but then I That's did. Right. And you were, you've always been terrible at watching my work. You're always, you, you saw, you saw, no, you've been terrible. You saw Plan 9 from Outer Space, but you didn't see Ed Wood. Now you just watched, you watched the documentary uh, about Jim and Andy, but you didn't watch Man on the Moon. You Look, know, so you watched, uh, you know, I'm you watched gonna... Versace season, but you didn't watch uh, OJ. Have you watched OJ yet? Have you watched OJ no, yet? No, not yet. I'm sorry. Oh, you're a sad person. You are a sad person. Why am I doing this? Why am I being your friend here on this because podcast? Because you're nice. Is it over yet? Is it over yet? I don't know. Is it time? Seems like I gotta gotta go. Um, you know, I'm gonna. And email... I mentioned my house is burning. <laughs> I mentioned my house is burning. My house is burning. I and mean, I'm still talking to you. It's really terrible here. I'm gonna email my film school and tell them that we should watch Edward instead because mm -hmm. I really mean that. I think mm. it would be much okay. more helpful. It's uh, it's you know, here's the thing about Edward and Dolomite even a little bit more. Have you seen Dolomite? Not yet. Oh my God, you're terrible. My Netflix was not working. It's not my fault. Uh, it wasn't working. Yeah. Oh, it never worked. It's never worked since October. You are a liar and a horrible person. I'm going to um, catch up after this conversation. Okay, fine. Um, yeah, don't email your film school. Just, you watch this shit first. Yeah, I agree. Okay. I'll show by example. <laughs> Um, right. But yeah, so, so there was no this week. Like I'm gonna talk to Larry. I better watch like some of his movies. No, you I didn't have, do any of that. I have other things going on. Like I have so much going on. <laughs> like I don't have other things going on. I'm watching Gazelle's movies and prepping for your podcast. He's made only five films, and you've seen them many times. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> so what was the saying? Mm. Um, so Man on the Moon. Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey, because yeah. obviously he's. I think his acting style. It can't really be compared to, to Casals, but it's kind of a similar dedication to the character and to really becoming a person. And when I watched the documentary, well, Jim was more did much more of the sort of like you know, taking method as far as he possibly could. So exactly. he, you know, how he didn't he became Andy and Tony for the entire shoot. Uh, so I don't think Casal did that kind of stuff mm. um but you know basically jim used man on the moon as a way to just become andy kaufman um it's kind of backwards <laughs> yeah he's because totally in and and you know inhabited the person 24 hours a day um uh you know it's one thing you couldn't you couldn't refer to jim as jim on the set you had to refer him as andy or tony and um but it's interesting for for that sort of for that complete immersion you know, you are correct. The movie, at the end of the day, has a there's a distancing thing about the film, and that's sort of on purpose. I mean, some of our our movies have sometimes because they're 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 uh, like fringe biopics. They've been called and we we had a phrase anti biopics. Mm -hmm. Anti biopics, as we usually say, it's anti biopic because it's a biography of someone who doesn't deserve a biography. Um, but this uh, Man on the Moon is, I think, a real anti biopic, and I remember Milos. Uh, uh, as the movie was coming out, he leaned over to Scott and he's like, "You know, you know, <laughs> this is a very unusual film. You actually know less about Andy Kaufman when you come out of the theater than you did coming in." And he's right. You come into the movie theater saying, "Oh yeah, Andy Kaufman is kind of funny. I saw him do Mighty Mouse. I saw him do Taxi. This is kind of good." And by the end of the movie, you're like, oh, "Jesus Christ! I don't know. I don't. What do I know about this guy?" Yeah. He's a. It's a. We would be attempted to do there whether we're successful or not was an onion where like the more you peel, the more you peel, you think you're getting onto the real next level, next layer, next layer. And then there's nothing there. Mm. My I feeling mean, the key was, to that, yeah, yeah, go ahead. 
My feeling was that you were trying to express kind of the essence of who Andy Kaufman was through showing his his process and and with that ending that's quite ambiguous, like whether he's yeah. dead or not. And yeah. it's it kind of like I don't know anything about him really. Um, I knew vaguely that he was a comedian and a weird one, but yeah, I, I really got the sense of a personality rather than a life story, if you want. Like it was right. more about who. Like the, the yeah the personality the the thought process of this guy than it was about what happened to him, which is a, right. which I think is totally valid and totally interesting. Like it's yeah. same with Edward. I mean, obviously there's a story, but like it's more you you kind of take this character, you put him in situations that are standard, like career stuff, and you see what he does, and you're just like why, <laughs> and it feels so it's kind of captivating and also yeah distancing and makes you think a lot about why the world is a certain way and why can't you do things differently. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I appreciate it for that. Well, it just was yeah. a difficult though, watch. I mean, though, I mean, our films question whether main, kind of whether mainstream thought is what uh, is really, you know, whether that should be the, the accepted way. Um, you know, I mean, here's the thing about like even the ending of Man, you know, and when we make these movies, we always think what, um, what will this person be remembered for? Mm. And part of Andy Kaufman's legend is that when he died, people didn't believe that he died because he had feels he was a boy who cried wolf. There's so many times that you know he had kind of thick people and got people like worked out that he, no one really believed it. So for us, we wanted to go out on a moment of total a total Andy Kaufman moment. Mm. I mean, the you are correct. The movie that movie more than the others. Uh, is trying to tell a person's uh, story by showing uh, it's kind of a almost like a performance film. They're showing by showing how his act reflects his personality and, and, and how they interact between what he does on stage and what he does in real life. Mm -hmm. I mean, no, uh, most of our movies aren't really about like like I said, aren't cradle grave. It isn't. It isn't that that biopic thing where they break down and they talk about how their dad beat them or they were, you know, I, that's, that's kind of our problem with most biopics because, you know, you make a movie about a great painter and why do you care about that great painter? You care about the great painter because of how he paints or how she paints and how the art gets made. That's what you're, you know, that's what you want to know. But instead it's always about, Oh, I got married to that person. And now I'm mm. an alcoholic. And it's us. That's like actually the least important thing about yeah. that that person you know I mean, who cares you know to me it's like when i you know when i want to know the story of rudy ray moore i don't know how he made those records i want to know how he made those movies i want to know how he got his whole act together and we'll do a little bit of like you know what whether it's what is you know how he how his real life infected that art but there's these people's stories are there how they created this stuff and to us, it's like, actually, I feel like the other stuff is more superficial because the other stuff is just trying to, oh, this is what happened, you know, uh, to, and the real, and that stuff is the mundane stuff. I don't want to, I mean, I'm not picking on, um, the, you know, uh, Jackson Pollock. I mean, that movie is a fine movie, but, you know, it's, it's you know, and that movie does get into the arts. I'm, I'm picking on the wrong movie, but there are, there are movies about people that you barely even get to their, their stuff yeah. because they're too busy talking about how their dad didn't love them. Mm, yeah, and totally. that's like you know I don't really don't care whether they love mm, them or not. It's kind of like gossipy in a way, and yeah, like I don't give a shit about that. <laughs> I'd yeah, rather yeah. yeah. It's kind of the same approach I have to actors. Like when I talk about actors, I don't want to talk about their private life. 
unless obviously it has an impact on their work. But like the point right. is to talk about the work. Um, right. Yeah. One last thought on, on Man on the Moon, though, was um, uh, we um, we had because Andy is so amorphous, we had trouble trying to figure out that movie and how to structure how to structure it and stuff like this. And uh, we were interviewing all the people who knew him. And Lynn Margulies came in, and she's a woman that uh, Courtney Love plays in the film. Mm, he's and uh, yeah, and um, she's a filmmaker as well. And she came in. She says, "I just don't know how you guys are going to do this. I, you know, I, I promised Andy I was going to make a film about him, but when I tried to do it, I just couldn't figure out how you turn his his life into a film." And she said, uh, "That's what she said." And then we answered, "Well, you know, we're just we're doing all this research because we want to find the real Andy." Mm. And she looked at us and said, "There was no real Andy." And that gave us chills, and and we thought, oh my god, yeah, that's the movie, that's the movie. That's that, why it gave me know. chills the whole film. I was just like, yeah, who is this guy? What does he want from me? <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like to go back yeah. to um, Jim Carrey. So, as the writer of this film with Scott Alexander, did you have any um, input on what he was doing? as the performer of your character like how how did that work like did you feel any do you have any reservations about his decision to become andy i mean uh no not really i mean it's uh, you know uh always had reservations was 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 some of the it's more like the production manager in me rather than the writer it's like was some of this necessary and all this other stuff why were you driving milo so crazy uh but um uh you know he committed to the part, and it's part of the, once again, that's part of the legend of the film. It's such a legend of the film that there's even a documentary about it. So mm. it's, it'd be hard for me to, uh, you know, um, if the movie doesn't capture a certain sweetness Andy had, that's a little bit of a drag, perhaps, because I do think that it was a, there was a little bit of, what we're talking about Kazal, there was a little bit of a puppy dog nature to, to Andy that maybe the movie doesn't quite get. And I'm not blaming Jim for that. And sort of, the movie just doesn't quite get that enough, probably his, his yeah, sweeter movies. side before. There yeah, moments when um, he's really sweet. but that is, but that is, um, I've been very blessed. Almost all of our biopics have insanely good lead performances. I mean, they've all, you know, whatever. Martin Landau won an Oscar. Uh, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, Jim Carrey won a Golden Globe. Amy Adams won a Golden Globe. Uh, almost every cast member from OJ won an Emmy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, Eddie, well, you know, was nominated for a Golden Globe. So there's one of those things where almost all our films use, you know, that, that we write parts that, you know, if the right actor connects with it, it's, it's, they can be very powerful. Mm. And about that, do you, do you allow any kind of improvisation on your text or how does that work? Cause like for instance, Kazal, um, Kazal, I know for instance, on Dog Day Afternoon, the whole process of the film was they rehearsed for three weeks, I believe. And that's yeah. how they built the the dialogue and everything. And then once right. on set, they just kind of recaptured those moments they had prepared already. And right. I think that you can really feel it in the film. You sense this; it feels so real. Basically, is this realness of yeah. classic seventies films? Although that are well you done. know, here's the thing that that's a brilliant script. So I, I you know, I, sure. I would say that you'd be you, a lot of times you hear these things. Oh, they 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 did improv and they did this, and you go back and you read Frank Pearson's script. It's Dog Day Afternoon. You know, the, the Frank Pearson is a master. Actually, it's funny. There's one thing that Dog Day Afternoon, I share with Frank and Dog Day Afternoon. I've always heard Dog Day Afternoon, they actually shot his first draft, where they improvised and things like that, but they shot his first draft. And Ed Wood, they shot it. He shot, Tim shot our first draft. Oh, amazing. Um, 
Yeah. So, um, you know, the improvising thing is, is sort of uh, you, you want actors to bring themselves to the part. You don't want them just to be acting and saying the lines. And generally that's, um, that's not this thing that, that, you know, people think is like some create, Oh, it's still the scene. Here's the thing. Yeah. We write a very, very, our scripts, every scene has a point. So if you're coming into someone's office and you got to make them do this, it's got a, that scene has a beginning and an end. Mm-hmm. All right. So it's gonna, you know, that's writing. This writing is, you know, dialogue is great. Dialogue's great writing too, but your the structure is also the writing and the uh, and the bottom line is like a lot act uh, like Milos for example Tim Tim I mean Ed Wood is like line for line our film um, when uh, uh, big guy is probably the same thing um, but Milos was you know uh, he wanted outside input from everybody he wanted everyone to contribute things so there's um you know there's a lot more improvisation in both those films, but they're the same, you know, what happens is you improvise on the set. And so you're filming and maybe I have a, our, our scene is one page long. So it's still, you know, Oh, hi, how are you, John? Blah, blah, blah. And you got to get to like, well, fuck you at the end. All right. But um, there's a stuff in between where that gets them there. Um, so on the, in the, you know, one page should be like a minute. If you're filming it and you worked it out as much those actors can do can talk for two minutes or whatever, do their whole thing, but they still got to get enter one way, leave another way. So when you, then you got to go back to the editing room mm-hmm. and all of a sudden that can't be a five minute scene. Yeah. So you cut, you cut back to what's, what's the point of that scene? Do we have to, should we just throw the whole scene out? What's the point? Oh, the point is he's got to get to where he's mad at the guy. Mm-hmm. So you wind up cutting in the cutting room and it ends up being the script pages. It yeah. ends up being the script pages, except some kind of unrepeatable moment that occurred you know that some little thing would make you know that just seems like and this might just be a changing of a word here or there but it's just more that they made it they made it their own but it's it's still the you know it's mm-hmm. still the, the still the script it's mm-hmm. not you know and sometimes actors it's more actors because they're bringing so much to it they're bringing their life to it this they you know that's not that's not writing that's part of the actor's job like directors sometimes say oh i change you know you had this thing but i put the car coming in first that's directing Mm-hmm. that's different than writing so so scott and i aren't like you know worked worked up about that too much you know you hire eddie murphy to play rudy ray moore and eddie's pretty faithful to the script but you know eddie's gonna gonna drop a lot more f-bombs than mm-hmm. you know that were then we type in the script because that's just the nature of uh, of you know of his comedy yeah um you know so and you want that yeah you don't want you, that's you know you, you want him. eddie the, exactly mm. no i think that's totally right i think a lot of people when they think of improvisation they think of some like free floating thing that goes nowhere. But yeah, it's true. Like even when I was doing my acting training and the text can, the text is everything. Like that's why we spend so much time learning the lines, because even if you improvise, that's the lines, the, the lines are guiding you and without them, you, you're nothing. So Correct. I think that's totally true. And Right, I would hate like because you'll you'll yeah. see it you'll see it in in true improvising where you can just feel, to me that feels almost more fake than people doing their lines because totally. you just see people trying to think of the next thing. So uh, um, that's where you get a lot of one actor repeating what the other one said. Like say something to me, say something, just say something, anything to me. Does um, that ask me a question? How are you? Oh, how am I? How am I? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. How am I? Well, how am I? You know, that you see that a lot of stuff. And as great as Cassavetes is, there's a lot of that mm-hmm. where they just sort of like, you know, you can tell that they're just sort of repeating what the last person said while they think of something to say. Mm. I mean, as opposed to just really living in the moment. I have, you know, I haven't yeah. repeated anything you said the entire time until then. Mm. I think repeating is good for like when you're rehearsing and getting into it. But mm-hmm. yeah, like once sure. you're on set, you don't need to. Don't have time for that. Right. You need to get to the point. Yeah, totally. Right. When we were just talking about improvisation, I just remembered, you know, in uh, Dog Day Afternoon, when um, I was going to say Michael Corleone, no, when Al Pacino mm. asks Kazal, uh, mm. where do you want to go? <laughs> what country yeah. do you want to go? And he says, Wyoming. Yeah. That was yeah. improvised, apparently. Yes. And that's just priceless. And, and it's not like a hilarious but, moment when you watch the film, right. but it just crystallizes this character yeah. as like, oh, he's a bit out of it and yeah. it's kind of scary because he's so calm but he's out of it right. yeah i mean but what's funny also about about that is the um um you know uh Cazal would always uh ask questions i felt mm. he felt like you know part of his part of his method to, to playing inhabiting characters he would ask lots and lots of questions endless questions and he felt like even questions didn't necessarily have to have an answer but asking that question will get your character a certain point so there was something on Dog Day Afternoon. Um, I think maybe concerned. There's a part where his his character uh, doesn't want to be for, referred to as a homosexual on TV or something mm-hmm. like this, and he gets all worked up about that. But uh, but um, like they were shooting it, and he asked Lamette, like you know, well, why do I, you know? Well, why am I saying that? And Lamette would talk to him, and apparently they went off to to. Uh, yeah, a little private thing, and it went on for like twenty minutes. Well, why would I say? Wouldn't I, you know? Why would I? Why would I say that? And finally, Lamette said, "You know why you say it? Because it's written that way in the script. Now, just say, <laughs> just say the fucking line or whatever, you know." So it was, you know, and Kazal completely accepted that. Oh right, okay. He, said, he accepted. He accepted that as a, as even part of the character. Sometimes you say things and there isn't, you know, mm-hmm. you just got, you know. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I I saw an interview with uh, Meryl Streep, who was his partner until yes. he passed away and she said that he would always when they were working on characters together or like you know helping each other out he would he would always show her that there were always other ways to do the character and she apparently she said that she really kept that in her memory because yeah. you can always dig deeper or ask questions just keep asking questions and be like well why would i do it this way and not this other way because maybe that's better and i think you can really mm-hmm. feel that in all of his parts because they're always unexpected like yeah. re- rewatching, especially Dog Day, I was so f- shocked by how scary he is in his vulnerability. Like in the yeah. fact that you feel like he's a ticking bomb and he yes. might just explode at some point because he's just so scared. And that's a very yeah. specific. It makes sense that the character was actually 19 because that's kind of a puerile way to behave, but yeah. it also works as this character. Yeah, you, you said the perfect word, a ticking bomb. He is like, he's like, there's a powder cake sitting there waiting to go off. But he's not. He's also not really threatening at the same time. There's that. It's that contradiction mm. where that's a, he does it in so many of his parts. Where it's just like it's like he's one thing, but he's also something else. He's not. Totally. He's not playing one thing. Mm. He rarely is playing one thing. He's got that complexity of you know human beings. Yeah. And you brought up Meryl Streep. And Meryl Streep really, you know, uh, they met. I think he was doing Measure for Measure for Joe Papp in the park, and um, you know, she really loved him and really took care of him as he got sick. And 
I mean, he, there was a lot, you know, I think the actors really had a lot of affection towards John. I mean, he had cancer before the deer hunters started. And, you know, uh, it was basically if you, if you're sick, you can't get insurance and your movie can't really get made. So, you, you know, uh, but De Niro put up his salary to pay for the bond to get Kazal in the film because he wanted Kazal in the movie. Um, so yeah, I think there's just a great deal of affection for him. Mm. Um, yeah. And one of the scenes I'd say we should talk about it a little bit because I think it might be one of his best scenes in, in in his whole body of work is when I think it's the second to last film scene in the, in Godfather Two where um, he's he comes back to Tahoe and he sort of explains himself to Pacino. Mm. And and Michael Corleone is typical Michael Corleone, and and Cazale is sort of like you know that's the whole I'm smart I'm not dumb like other people think I am I'm smart, and so he's actually I could see another actor thing, and this is a time I'm going to stand up to my brother, and this you know my brother shuts me down again, and there's a little bit of that, mm. but instead Cazale plays it on this lounge chair yeah, that flops like... around. <laughs> Yeah, he's lying. He looks he's talking really, to Michael, confessing. Uh, he looks he's already dead for the most part, you know. And so yeah. and when he finally does it, he, he then he instantly uh, you know, and Michael shuts him down, he he backs down. There's a bunch of times in, in conversation in Godfather movies where where his character sort of stands up. Mm-hmm. He sort of, you know, uh he sort of you know, he he you know, he, you know he's trying he, to take the space he deserves, but yeah. then he just correct yeah. and then then the person shuts him down michael mm-hmm. you can't talk to mo green like that mm-hmm. and it's like you know don't ever take sides with anyone in the family you yeah. know again and it's like and so there's a moment when you just see his face i mean he's always it's also interesting as an actor he, he he's full of i wouldn't call them ticks because they're not they're not attention drawing they're not like but he's always like sort of he does a lot of looking down Mm-hmm. He does a lot of looking away and kind of like, you know, he's just, he's sort of, uh, uh, yeah, there's, uh, there's just a lot of that. And so mm-hmm. that, that's what happens. Even when he sort of like tries to stand up for himself against Michael Corleone, something will happen. He'll totally yeah. go back to yeah. where he was. I think it's because you know? like we were saying, like he really understands his character. And if you think of Fredo trying to stand up, like he already yeah. is defeated and he already thinks that, yeah, in a way, like if he has to ask for space, that means he's already lost. I mean, you shouldn't. It's your family; right. they should respect you. So he's already yeah. beaten down, and is there's a lot of despair in that. So yeah, totally. I think he said, or someone said, like you know, um, he's not playing weakness; he's letting weakness inform his character. If that makes sense, he's letting mm-hmm. weakness be a part of who Fredo is. Totally. And when Fredo's in his element, when he's in Vegas and he's like, you know, he's just a little, little, basically a small-time hood pimp. You know, he's he's you know he's he's Mr. Party and Entertainment. But the second Michael comes and Michael doesn't want to see other girls in the room, he totally, you know, he he's lost because he thought he was mm-hmm. doing something good, and then Michael just shuts him down completely. Mm-hmm. He goes back you know. to how he was um, before. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay. I think we've covered it this time. I think we have. Yeah. Well, this is why I did. I, I went initially. I thought I was going to do Barbara Stanwyck, but then I looked at her filmography and I was like, "Oh my God, Barbara Stanwyck! That's like forty movies." So oh yeah. Let's yeah, pick yeah. somebody who. Let's pick pick someone who has has just a limited amount, so we you know we can get through it in one hour. Literally, but Barbara Stanwyck. You I, should do Barbara Stanwyck sometime. But, I love know. Barbara Stanwyck. But uh, she's the best. Yeah, she's there was the a season uh, of her films at the BFI. Well, before mm-hmm. lockdown and everything, and I oh, I loved it so mm-hmm. much. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, you picked yeah. not only a guy who had five films, but only four characters. 
And also, yes, that's did, crazy. Did you I know? I thought about that when I was. I thought about that when I was like preparing for today. I was like, um, I was like, oh, this is really weird. He's like, <laughs> everyone's talked about the five films, but like Fredo's, he plays Fredo. Yeah, and also know? he's got yeah. two characters called. I mean, he's got one character in two films called Fredo, and then two other characters in two different films called Stan. Yeah, and, and Mike. then Sal. Yeah, there's Mike. Uh, I think um, I think De Niro's could name Mike in uh, in Deer Hunter, and then you got Michael Corleone in the other ones. Literally, there are four and names Sonny, in America. Sonny Corleone, Sonny Corleone and yeah. Sonny uh, is the bankrupt. That's so, really weird. I never thought of that. <laughs> Crazy. But yeah, but I mean, yeah. five films, but what films? And this was a great episode anyway. And yeah. you talked a lot about five film and, and three directors. Yeah, true. <laughs> uh, yeah. What, what directors though? Was, yes, correct. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Larry. And uh, All right. speak soon. Thanks for listening to or watching this episode of You Gotta Act. Find us on social media at You Gotta Act and let us know what you think. See you next time.